following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are in Hebrews, and we are in our second week of Hebrews. And last week, we talked about one of the main purposes of Hebrews, of not the main purpose, and that is to elevate Jesus as superior. The writer of Hebrews starts off at the beginning saying, God, in his mercy, found ways to reveal himself throughout history in all kinds of ways. We talked last week that it was almost like puzzle pieces, that God kept revealing himself. You kind of had to put them all together to get the big picture. But in Jesus, you see the fullness of this revelation, revelation, and you see uh, in Hebrews, Jesus portrayed as, this is the one you focus on. There's nothing else that you need to focus on other than Jesus. In fact, the writer said, the Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression or image of his nature, sustains all that exists through the power of his word. He was seated at the right hand of God once he himself had made the offering that purified us from all our sins. So Jesus is supreme. And that leads us right into this week's passage. And now I'm in chapter 2. I'm starting in verse 1, which begins, that is why... So that is referring to everything from chapter 1, this focus on Jesus who brought this great salvation to us. That is why we ought to pay even closer attention to the voice that has been speaking so that we will never drift away from it. For if the words of instruction and inspiration brought by heaven's messages were valid, it's a rhetorical question, they were, and if we live in a universe where sin and disobedience receive their just rewards, and we do, But how will we escape destruction if we ignore or neglect this great salvation? So I want to notice something here. This is written to believers. When this passage talks about neglecting or ignoring this great salvation, it's not referring to what we think of as the moment of salvation, that time in our life where we actively surrender ourselves to Christ and say, You are Lord, I give my life to you, heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm in. This is written to people who have already said that. These are people following Jesus. So this isn't about the initial act of surrender. This is about the ongoing life we have as Christians as we follow Jesus. And the idea here is you can drift or neglect things like, yeah, that was pretty cool at the beginning, but eh, just kind of loses its impact after a while. So I was thinking of, in my life, moments of salvation I have experienced, not uh, ultimate spiritual salvation, but kind of earthly forms of salvation. So we're going to ramp them up here with three examples. One, when I was a kid, and I would get a splinter, I would just be undone. I don't know why. Splinters really bothered me. And my mom would come with a tweezers or a needle or whatever magical instrument she used and would get this splinter out for me kind of a little saved me from this dilemma. And I was like, oh, thank you, Mom, through my tears, because it always hurt. Ten minutes later, uh, I neglected to even remember or acknowledge that salvation or that Savior, so to speak, because it wasn't that big a deal at the end of the day. It was just a splinter. But a number of years ago, I had shoulder surgery. Oops, it's the wrong shoulder. I had shoulder surgery. At that time, it was a problem. I I couldn't sleep in my bed at night because I couldn't get comfortable. I couldn't go in the backyard and throw a football with my son or shoot a basketball. I mean, it was just really giving me problems. It was really quite painful. So I I go to the surgeon, and he fixes my shoulder. 
Those of you who had shoulder surgery, you know it's more complicated than that, but he fixes my shoulder. He went to the same gym that I did. You know what? Every time I saw him, we don't go to the same gym anymore. This would still be true. I was always like, hey, how you doing? And he would talk with me like he, he solved a bigger problem in my life. He was a bigger savior, so to speak. And so they gave me stuff to do at, in physical therapy to make my shoulder better. And like, if you want this shoulder to heal, don't neglect what this surgery has offered you. But you're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to stay engaged. The surgery fixed you, but now there's some work to do. And so as I'd be in the gym, my doctor there, when he'd see me, would check in with me. How's it feeling? How's it going? At one time he goes, it looks like you've got it figured out, which felt like, well done, good and faithful servant on a shoulder level. But if I still see him, I still have really warm feelings for him because he fixed my shoulder. I'm so conscious at the gym that I do things that strengthen what he gave me because he gave me a new shoulder and I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to lose it. Does that make sense? So then I had a heart attack. So once again, now this is a bigger deal. Shoulder wasn't life and death. Heart attack was. I mean, when I went to my shoulder surgeon after the surgery, I didn't say, thank you for saving my life. That's what I said to the doctor who worked on my heart. Thank you for saving my life. Now, I've also got some stuff to do follow up on that. All right, Anthony, are you doing stuff where you're conscious that you've been given a second chance here with this new heart? Are you being more careful about how you are ordering your life so that you don't squander that gift of a new heart that has been given to you? This is the idea, but now at a spiritual level, and a level that far surpasses any example I just gave. And that is, in the act of salvation, Jesus gives us a new life. Gives us a new life. But, but it's possible for us to neglect this, even though we're saved from destruction. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about us, we are being saved, like God's continuing to work in us. I mean, this is amazing. If you think about what we've been saved from through the act of salvation, unbelievable, unbelievable what we have been spared and the life that we have been given. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, but you've got you to be careful because you could neglect this. You could drift away. We're going to come back to this at the end of the sermon. The writer continues, we heard this great salvation first from our Lord Jesus, then from those who passed on his teaching. God also testifies to this truth by signs and wonders and miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit lighting on those he chooses. So the writer says, okay, first of all, don't ignore the salvation we talked about in chapter one. Now, second, this is almost a little bit of an aside or a footnote where Okay, you've got this great salvation, almost as if anticipating the readers are going to go, why would we think this is such a great salvation? He goes, okay, for three reasons. Jesus taught it. The disciples and the apostles have passed it on to us. And then God confirmed it through miraculous things. God made sure you knew he was behind it by showing his power. These are sometimes what people call inaugural miracles or inaugural gifts. In other words, when something starts, we would call it an inauguration, like a new president, you, you have a big deal when you first have this happen. Okay, so scripture is given to us, Jesus is here, the message of salvation is given. Now to inaugurate it, you have these miraculous things that God does so that it's clear 
that these claims that are being made by speakers and being written on paper, there's a power behind this that gives this authority. I think of the example from Matthew 9. I think it's also recorded in Mark 2 where Jesus is healing a lame man. And he says, um, by the way, he says, I can forgive your sins. And the people are really skeptical. You can, besides, you could say that all day long because you can't see inside that act of forgiveness. You could say it, but how would we ever know? And then Jesus says, so that you believe I can do this, he heals the lame man. Okay, if you see that miracle and you recognize that power, that's to show that when I make claims about things, I'm talking for Jesus. Let me rephrase that whole thing. Jesus says, when you hear me make claims about things you can't see and you're skeptical, just watch the things that you can see to help you understand I have the power to do these things. So there's a visible validation from God so that the claims of invisible power and realities are confirmed. Last week we talked about the, the writer of Hebrews saying, listen, get over angels. Don't focus on angels. I mean, they're important messengers of God. But that's not where your focus should be. Your focus should be on Jesus. It, it almost feels like here he's also going, oh, by the way, there's all these inaugural miracles, and the, the audience probably knew a lot about him, seeing how he does it, the writer doesn't list them. So I'm assuming the people there knew what the writer was talking about. He goes, okay, but you recognize those are a sign. They're pointing towards something else. Don't get so fixated on the signs that you lose track of what is being pointed to by those signs. Miracles are always meant to be signs pointing toward the one who makes miracles possible. Okay, so two things so far in chapter 2. Don't neglect your salvation. And then second, it's legit. Jesus said it. You have the right messengers who passed it on. God confirmed it through his power. And now the writers goes back to angels because we didn't get enough in chapter 1. Now, clearly, God didn't set up the heavenly messengers to bring the final word or to rule over the world that's coming. In one place, the scriptures say, and now the writer is talking about Jesus or getting to a discussion about Jesus. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. When God placed everything under the Son of Man, that is Jesus, he didn't leave out anything. Maybe we don't see all that happening yet, but what we do see is Jesus, born a little lower than the heavenly messengers, who is now crowned with glory and honor because he willingly suffered and died. And he did this so that through God's grace, he might taste death on behalf of everyone. That's an interesting image. By the way, if you pick up my notes today, there are tons of footnotes to go with this that I just don't have time to get into. A common way of execution in that time was for people to drink poison. They would put poison in a cup. You had to drink it. And this imagery of Jesus tasting death for everyone carries with it some implications like all of us deserve for what we have done to be given the poisoned cup. But Jesus takes that cup. Think of in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. Jesus takes the cup and he drinks it so that we don't have to. So this gives us the answer to the question at the beginning of this section. How do we escape this great destruction? And the answer is that Jesus willingly suffered and died. And he did this so that through God's grace, he might taste death on behalf of everyone. 
So that's our great salvation. And yet, we drift. We neglect this great salvation that's been given to us. Going back to the beginning of this passage, that is why we ought to pay even closer attention to the voice that has been speaking about this great salvation so that we will never drift away from it. Okay, so this drifting image, probably the most popular use of it in literature at that time was the idea of a ship that's anchored doesn't hold, or you forget to put an anchor down, and now you're at the mercy of the elements, of the currents, of the storms of life. They use it to describe an arrow just slipping from a quiver when you didn't notice, or a ring accidentally slipping off your finger. One of the more interesting ones I found was if you make a vessel to hold water and you make it poorly, water's just going to leak out of this vessel all over. So this word for drifting has all those meanings. It, and you'll notice something in all of them is that it happens easily. It's not a verb that requires anything of you. Drifting is what happens when you do nothing. So we like to go tubing in the summers. And we were on the Boardman this last summer. And I like to drift on the Boardman. But when I drift on the Boardman in a tube, I run into stuff and I get stuck on the side in a dead spot. And we popped one tube on that particular trip. That was a good time. Um, Drifting, I mean, drifting is in some ways just so lovely. You just let everything else do the work and you're just going to go where everything takes you. But on the other hand, drifting is, of course, purposeful, purposeless, so it's drifting. And you don't really have, you've decided in this case, I will not participate in my direction in life. I'm just going to go with the flow. Wherever it takes me, we'll be fine. And this is how we neglect our salvation, right? We drift in the currents of the world. I was thinking of ways in my life in which I can drift and it has terrible consequences. So how do I get lost on a trip? I just drive. I'm not going to pay any attention to maps or anything. I'm just going to drive. Eventually, I'll get lost. So how do I get lost on a trip? I, I do nothing, really, I mean, other than push the gas pedal. How do I let my garden become a lawn? I do nothing. If you'd like to see this in action, just swing by our house. How do I get out of shape? I do nothing. How do I become more ignorant versus more knowledgeable about something? Do nothing. How hard would Braden have to work to have his college scholarship revoked? Well, he wouldn't, in fact. He would have to do nothing. Are you sensing a theme here? Drifting is what happens when you do nothing. And this is what the writer is warning us about, that there's a spiritual kind of drifting in which we are now at the mercy of everything around us. And we just go wherever life takes us. And there's no purposefulness to our lives. There's no goal that we're shooting for. It's easy to drift, but it's dangerous. So let's go back to the boat imagery because, as we're going to see in a minute, there's more boat imagery in this passage than anything else. If I am out in the lake and I'm on, let's say, West Bay and I don't anchor my boat, what is eventually going to happen? I'm going to either run into somebody else or I'm going to run aground or both. Or I might just drift out into the lake, who knows, but eventually it ends badly. We know this in life. 
right? Anytime we talk about just kind of drifting, if we talk about someone who is just a drifter, we're acknowledging, ah, they're, maybe we'll say free spirit, but we're recognizing they're just drifting. It's not typically used as a compliment. Even when you talk about it like in racing where you drift with your car, you're going to control that before too long because you're going to want to drift forever. That's going to be a problem. So it's easy to drift, but it's dangerous. Uh, thinking of a phrase, I don't know who said it. I've heard this a long time ago. If you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up somewhere else. Have you ever heard that? The idea behind it is if we don't know where we're going, where we end up will be somewhere we don't want to go. It'll be somewhere else than we thought our life would, would end up. If you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up somewhere else. That's why the writer says, pay even closer attention to what's been taught. This is an image of landing a ship, bringing a ship to dock, and making sure it's secure. So the question I had when I was reading this was, how do I do this? So what I'm going to offer you this morning is something we call spiritual disciplines. And depending where you go to look these up, you can find very different kinds of lists. I happen to choose a particular one from a dude named Nathan Hale. And once again, if you pick up my notes or wait till this is posted online, I'll give you a website to go to. You can read the whole article. These are just ways that Christians throughout the centuries have found that certain practices or rhythms to their life have been helpful to keep them from drifting. I feel like our default is to drift, honestly, that it's just easy to let things go. It's hard to be purposeful. It's hard to go against the currents. It takes work. you got to paddle. It can be exhausting. But nonetheless, it's the thing that helps you understand this is the destination I have. This is where I'm going. Now, I don't want to offer these as a legalistic kind of if you check this list or you'll be spiritual, or if you don't do this, uh, God's going to reject you. It's not that kind of list. It's just a way to be purposeful with our lives, to make sure that we're not drifting, that we're not neglecting this great salvation that has been given to us. So I believe there's 12 things. I'm just going to go through them very briefly. Uh, Message Plus would be a good place to come afterwards and talk more about these if you're interested. Number one is prayer. Just communicating with God. I would encourage you, by the way, to study what is prayer. I'm more and more convinced prayer can be a lot of things, especially if the call is to pray without ceasing. Can't walk around with my eyes closed without ceasing. Right? There's got to be something about the, uh, the breadth of prayer that there's a way in which God has created the world and created us so that we can continually be in an attitude or a spirit of prayer. But it's praising God. It's consciously thinking and speaking that God is amazing and thanking him for the many things he does in our life. It's petitioning God for forgiveness, for help. It's confessing our sins to God. It's thanking him. It's just taking a hike at times and remembering to thank God for the beauty of his creation. It's driving through town and that person doesn't pull out in front of you and you thank God for his protection. It's it's a rhythm of our life where we're constantly in this place of being aware that God is present and God is active 
and God is personal and God is near and all these things and just having the conversation of our life with God. The second is meditation. And this is focused meditation. Whatsoever things are good and true and pure and all those, think on these things. It's focusing on the character and nature of God. It's not clearing our minds. It's not going blank. When we talk about meditation as a spiritual practice, it is focusing on God. Third is fasting. Just to remind us of where our nourishment comes from. Uh, obviously, fasting with food is a, is a significant one, and I think for probably all of us, a challenging one. But I, I'm convinced you can fast with other things. Lots of people, people nowadays are doing media fasts. Um, you can do fasts from particular kinds of food. You can. There's lots of ways in which you can discipline yourself so that you're giving something up that costs you so that a hunger arises in you that you need to open your Bible. You need to spend time in prayer. You need to seek Jesus as the fulfillment of those hungers. Studying is another one. Careful attention to the reality that God reveals to us, especially through Holy Scripture. In other words, God has revealed himself through general revelation, that is his creation, and through special revelation, that's his word. And the study of both these things to the glory of God and with the focus on the one who has given it can be very, very formative in our lives. Uh, You probably can't study the Bible too much. Those of you in here who have been Christians for far longer than I have, I suspect if I would ask you, have you figured it all out yet? The answer is no. There are depths to this that you will plumb to the end of your life. I was just talking with a friend this week. I'm reading a couple books right now about unpacking the meaning of certain passages of Scripture, and I'm like, there are layers to that. I had no idea. This is amazing. They were listening to some podcasts by Christian teachers at the same time, and they're like, I know, I'm listening to this, and I had no idea there was this much depth to what was being said here in Scripture. I can't encourage you long enough to dig into that. Simplicity. That's simply seeking God's kingdom first. You seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's the first thing you seek. The answer to the question, what do you want most out of life? I want the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I sometimes have been approached by people who are trying to get me to be part of businesses. And their leading question would be, what do you want? Would you like a new house? Would you like a car and a boat? Would you like all these things? Okay, you know what I'd like? I'd like the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the simplicity of it. It orders everything else in our life. We just start with that. Oh, what do I want? Okay, I daydream about stuff I want, but there's something about the discipline of my daydreams. What do I want? Okay, I want the kingdom of God is righteousness. If I get these other things, I mean, that's fine. Do I need those other things? No. I need the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Submission is the next one. And that's simply obedience, placing God's will above ours. Just as a practice to our life, asking ourselves, am I surrendered to Christ? Not just with my immediate actions, but with my desires, with my goals, Am I reading scripture to see, am I aligned with the path of of Christ? 
by talking with godly friends and asking them to uh, give me feedback on my life? Am I praying and asking God to reveal to me, am I surrendered to you like I, I desire to be? Solitude. This might be an unusual one, but think of it in some ways of the idea of the rhythms of Sabbath, the rhythms of resting, of finding times where we get away from noise, and that includes people, and we just have quiet time with God. I don't mean as an excuse to not engage or as an excuse to hide. I'm talking about legitimate retreat time, resting, being able to get rid of distractions and focusing. Service, which is simply supporting others through what we do. It's loving our neighbors as ourselves, which has a lot more to do than having warm feelings for our neighbors. It has to do with serving our neighbors. At the final four and worship team, you can come on up. Uh, confession. This is acknowledging our sins, first to God, but then to others. I actually think the rhythm of confession, I don't want to say one of these is the most important because there's so many on here that are important. But I, I really believe if we can make the rhythm of confession a part of our life to God and to others that we trust, I think you'll find there's amazing things that happen when we are in accountability, deep, genuine, honest accountability. We don't do that to wallow in our sins. We just do it because we need to say to God and to others, um, I have sinned, I have failed. My desire is to be righteous, so God, help me, give me the strength. God's people, lock arms with me. Give me strength also. Guidance is simply giving and receiving directions from others. We've talked a lot in the last year about community in this church and the importance of being involved in community. This is why. We've got to be deeply intertwined with each other because we can get advice from all kinds of places and drift far away from what God's design is. But in the church, we've got to stick close together. We've got to be with each other on this. I think it starts from the time where people are little kids here in the congregation. We get them used to the rhythms of fellowship. It's time in nursery. It's time in Sunday school. It's time in Awana. It's time in youth group. It's time in classes. It's all these things we get used to. These are the people that form our lives. These are the voices that I want, and my kids' ears are in my ears because I know they're following Jesus. The Holy Spirit's at work in them. That's the community I want as often as I can get it. Two more things. Celebration. Just taking joy in what God has done. It's a constant thankfulness throughout the day, just over and over. God, thank you for this. Thank you for my family. Thank you for this church. Thank you for a beautiful September beach day, which was totally unexpected. Thank you for the beauty of the beach. I mean, just over and over, there's so many things to be thankful for. And then finally, worship. And this is, this is a lifestyle of giving glory to God through our attitudes, through our actions, through our words, through our voices, as we're going to do here in just a little bit. Spiritual disciplines. If drifting is the danger, anchoring is the solution. And we anchor ourselves in Christ. And while God does the work in our lives, we can never do. God's also given us a way to be active in our purposefulness. 
bringing disciplines to our life for the sake of not drifting, not because they'll save us, not because they make us superhero Christians, but because I, as a follower of Christ, say, I don't want to drift. I don't want to take this for granted. So God, you do every work inside me that you're going to do, but I, in my daily routines, am going to seek that anchoring purposefully with what I do. And then why do we do this? It's always to bring us back to Christ, right? We don't do those routines for the sake of the routines. These are once again meant to point us toward Jesus. And I suspect if we get that kind of rhythm in our lives, what we will find is the more we purposefully turn our eyes and our hearts and our minds upon Jesus, the, the more his glory increases the more we understand the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I've asked the worship team if they'll close with a song. We're just going to sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Just to focus on that great salvation that we've been given as a final opportunity this morning for some inspiration about more deeply pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are we ready? I invite you all to to stand, if you would, for this final song.
great salvation. I pray, Lord, that you help us not to drift, not to take it for granted, not to neglect what has been given to us. So we ask for your strengthening. As we get guidance from your word, from your Holy Spirit, from those around us, on guidance and strength, Lord, may this all focus us on the majesty of Jesus, the glory of what has been offered to us. May this inspire us in our love for you and our worship for you. And may we be a light in this dark world as we point people toward you. I pray this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.